to the Everson Cooper Podcast. We are entrepreneurs that are interested in what makes people successful. In this podcast, we sit down with a wide range of people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. We dive into the obstacles that they've had to overcome, their successes, unique experiences, and everything in between. Our goal is to continuously learn from those around us and share their knowledge so that we can all find something that makes us better and makes those around us better. We hope you enjoy. Before we get to our guest this week, we want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and you'll get every new episode delivered right to you every Wednesday. Also, be sure to download each episode and write a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And if you feel super compelled and inspired by our guests, go ahead and share this on your social media network too. We'll wait. Okay, great. Thanks. On the podcast today, we had Josh Cherry. This guy is a mega ball of energy, so buckle up and prepare your ears. Josh is the CEO and Director of Franchising for Delta Life Fitness, a boutique women's fitness franchise that is located across seven states with nearly 30 locations to date. He is a former Marine Corps officer with 14 years of service and training that has shaped his personal and professional values and principles. We talk about his unique leadership style and how he utilizes his optimistically optimistic approach to lead Delta Life Fitness, among other endeavors. We also discuss his recent accomplishment of competing in and finishing the Texas Ironman and what he did to train and be able to finish the grueling race that is the Ironman Triathlon. So I'll be quiet now so you can listen to our incredibly energetic conversation with Josh Cherry. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Yeah, yeah. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast. Uh, you are a super busy, super productive uh, guy. You are very, very inspirational to us. Just to kind of give some context uh, to our listeners, you currently are the CEO and head of franchising for Delta Life Fitness, a boutique women's uh, fitness franchise located across the country. We're definitely going to talk about that. Uh, former Marine Corps door gunner, served like what 13, 14 years uh, in the Marines. You host your own radio show called the Texas Franchise Radio, right? That's correct, Texas yeah. Franchise Radio. Yeah. Texas Franchise Radio. Uh, you're a budding public speaker, which is amazing. We're definitely going to talk about that. I'm, I'm super, super pumped to talk about that. Your husband, your dad. You're a super busy guy. One of the things I did not mention, and where I want to start, is you are a Texas Ironman finisher. Barely, but no, yeah. Either way, it doesn't matter. With 17 minutes to spare, but yes, I am. Fantastic. <laughs> that is super. Uh, I'm, I'm so impressed with that. I would like to think that I'm a fitness guy. I played college baseball, whatever. But if you said, hey, Andy, you're going to go do that, I'm like, I would, I would turn into the biggest baby. I would start bawling and crying, and I would just like lay on the floor, and like, you're going to have to drag me to do this. No way. Couldn't do it. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. What, when was the day, what was the inspiration, the moment of inspiration where you said, I'm going to do this? It's kind of funny because there's like, there's, there's not anything crazy like you would think. Like that's just kind of, it's kind of how my whole life has been, right? Like, so being in the fitness industry, you're supposed to be fit. (laughs) Okay. So, and when I first got into the fitness industry, early 2009, 2010 was like the peak of my fitness. I was trying to go from being the door gunner to an enlisted Marine to being a commissioned Marine where you have to go through officer cannon school. It's very tough. Uh, I had to get in really good shape at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I was at Texas A&M and we created Delta Life Fitness, 
Um, the website used to have a picture of me on it. It was like, I'll show you guys a picture. It's hilarious. Uh, but I was in really, really good shape. Yeah. Well, you know, through growing a franchise and my exit through the Marine Corps and being separated from the family, like there was a 16 month period where I was in California. Kristen was still in Florida with the kids. We're growing the franchise. I'm trying to get out of the Marine Corps. Just super stressed. Everybody uses the excuse all the time, like stressed, busy, and stopped working out completely. Like all of 2013, 14, 15, probably. We continue to build the franchise. I get out of the Marine Corps. I go back to Florida. We make the move here to Texas. And that was kind of like, that was as soon as we got here last summer, so summer of 2017, I kind of put the stake in the ground. I was like, okay, that's it. No more excuses. We've done it. Like, we've been fighting this hard battle for eight, ten years to live life on our terms to be entrepreneurs. And we're here. We got to pick where we wanted to move. We're moving to the Woodlands, Texas. I now get to do everything I always said I was going to when we made it, right? Like when we got to live life on our terms. So that's why I was like, I got to get back in shape. Mm-hmm. And I met, met Royce at the chamber, and he was like, yeah, big thing here in the Woodlands is the Iron Man. I was like, that's it. I'm going to do the Iron Man. <laughs> so <laughs> went home like that night and signed up. And it was just wow. like, I knew it was big enough to scare me enough to get me back into some healthy habits that I would, like, I couldn't ignore it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was so big and so scary. Like, I've got to start training again. Or I'm going to die on this thing. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of what pushed me for that. So what was the training prep like? What was, um, I guess, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, because I, I want to get into the details of yeah. this, because I think everyone's training is a little bit different, and everyone's um, level of competency, whether running, biking, or swimming, is, is they have, probably have a strength. What was your strength? What was your weakness but yeah. between the three? Good question. So I knew that swimming was going to be really easy for me. Being a pilot in the Marine Corps, one of the, and even before that when I was a door gunner, one of the things they make us do every year is you have to swim a mile in full flight gear. Like, so I was already used to, and they teach you these survival strokes that you use very low energy and you can go a long distance. So I was super comfortable with that. Plus, like, I'm a Southeast Texas boy, grew up on the river, like, just really comfortable in the water, mm-hmm. plus all the pilot training with swimming and swimming. So I, I like, didn't swim at all. Until, like, the week before, I went and got in the pool and did, like, 2,000 meters just to make sure, like, (laughs) yeah. And so, like, the guy in the lane next to me was like, you know, are you doing the Ironman? I was like, yeah. He's like, how long have you been swimming? I was like, it's my first my first time <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I had family members that were legit worried that I was going to drown and die and I was like I'm telling you I've got to swim yeah. uh, running I've done a lot of marathons obviously I was in better shape when I did them but I just I had like that's another thing from the military like you just have the the mental endurance of knowing that you can just drudge on and pain for a long time I have a lot of experience with that so the running I wasn't worried about at all I had never done any cycling period so I didn't know that, that was going to be my worst, but I was like, it's a bike. You're riding a bike. How sure. hard could that be? <laughs> like, learn to do that when you're 10, right? The bike is what crushed me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the swim was like I predicted. Like, I, I swam maybe, I'm not kidding, two, maybe three times the week before the event. The swim was perfectly fine. The bike crushed my soul. Uh, <laughs> and then the run, I held the pace I knew I was going to hold. So uh, the run was not too bad either, but the bike absolutely destroyed me. Wow. So my training... I did really good at the long weekend stuff. I knew, you know, I met with several people and kind of talked about, like, what are the milestones I've got to get in? You know, you got to get in a century ride. You've got to do at least one 100-mile bike ride. I knew I had to get one 20-mile run in. Didn't do any swimming. (laughs) Uh, So I was hitting the long distance on the weekends. Where I didn't get it in, though, was the uh, just throughout the week. Like, my miles throughout the week, Monday through Friday, were supposed to be a lot higher than they were. And 
It was very, very low. But I did hit my big weekend milestones. Yeah, okay. So did you did you have a particular goal? Like or is it, it was just just finish? I don't care if it's like one second left on the clock, just finish. What I've, was your goal for Yeah, you? I finished right at what I trained for the entire time. Like awesome. yeah, I knew that my bike needed to be around fifteen miles an hour and my runs needed to be fifteen minute miles or slower and I'd already calculated that would give me eight on the bike, seven on the run, and I'd finish within the a lot of time. So the goal is you get seventeen hours, the goal is to finish below seventeen hours. Yeah. And I finished at sixteen thirty. So okay. So I guess yeah, what time of what time of day was it that you started then seven o'clock in the morning right we jumped in the water is that right is that sounds uh and we finished we finished just before midnight Mm -hmm. is that 17 hours that's incredible it was it was a long long day i highly underestimated (laughs) and i've had some crappy days just training you know three deployments to iraq some days in the hills of quantico virginia training like i've had some long crappy days that was a long day man like (laughs) 17 hours of not stopping now, what was what was the mental game like? Were, were you fine? I mean, again, being being a Marine, training yeah. a bunch. I mean, I, you, you seem like a very mentally tough, mentally focused, prepared guy. When I guess when you were on the bike, so we'll talk about yeah. the the toughest part for you. When you were on the bike, yep. What was the mental game like? That, and that was there was two points where I thought like I'm not going to finish this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was about halfway on the bike, so you go down the Hardy Toll Road and then back up. And that's halfway. And then you got to do that again. When I got to the halfway point, I, I, like, I felt like I couldn't go anymore on the bike already, and I was only halfway. And I knew that I had a full marathon to run when I got back. Wow. So that, that down stretch, that the, you know, the third quarter of the bike, was I almost gave up. When I was coming back up on the bike, I had you know, mentally I started to get in better shape because I was like, okay, I'm almost done with the bike. But that right when I crossed halfway on the bike, and then uh, the second hardest time for me, my loving wife, Kristen, uh, the marathon part is three laps. You run three laps. Kristen, I give her a hard time because she is like, she's all business, right? Like, little emotion, like, super supportive, awesome wife, but she's a tough cookie. Like, if you're going to do something, you better do it, you know? So the marathon is three laps. I did one lap, and I came back around, and I'm just, I'm dead. Like, that bike, the bike crushed me like mm-hmm. i left part of my soul out on the hardy forward i think <laughs> so i get off the bike i transition i run the slowest lap of my life on that first lap and kristen i see her come running up to me i'm like oh thank god there's my wife like I haven't got to see her like all day she's like you better pick it up she's like <laughs> if you keep that pace that you just ran on that lap you're not gonna finish you know how much money we paid for this race like <laughs> so, so i laugh about it now but that's pretty accurate to what happened so i picked it up and then oh, i came back around goodness. i came back around lap two and she's like okay if you keep this pace you'll finish it yeah. You know, you'll finish at 1130. So I was like, I'm going to ratchet it back just a second. So that was the two worst parts. Right at halfway yeah. on the bike. And then after that first lap of the run, when she let me know that if I kept that pace. And the reason that was so mentally hard, because she told me, if you keep that pace you just did on that run, you're not going to finish in time. And all this is going to be for nothing. You've wasted your entire day. Sure. Yeah. That was so hard to me to hear at that moment. Because I was, it wasn't like I was throttling back. I was giving everything I had. You were, you were like on empty. I was, yeah. I, that was all I had. And I was barely, I didn't know if I could keep that for two more laps, let alone like go faster. So when she told me that if I kept that pace, I wasn't going to finish. Because the little tracker tells you, like based on your pace. And I was showing finishing at like one o'clock. Oh yeah, after that first lap, and so I had to pick it up quite a bit, and that was that was that was tough wow. just to figure out like how am I going to speed up? So finish line, what what was that like? Finish line was great. 
uh, you know, just super high on emotions. All my kids were there. They saw me finish. I was like on cloud nine. I was so excited. I remember watching the kids. My realtor, Brian Schweiker, was there. He came running over. He gave me this big hug. And, and everything was great. I was like, I felt so amazing that it was done, that it was over. And then all of a sudden, my whole world just got really blurry, and I couldn't see anymore. Uh, my body, it was really hot that day. My body had been trying to cool itself down the whole mm-hmm. time. I've always heard about, like, when marathoners and stuff cross the finish line, you got to wrap them in the blanket. Mm-hmm. It's never happened to me, so I wasn't too worried. But when I, when I crossed... Uh, everything went blurry. They had to bring me to the little medical tent. My body temperature dropped to like 92 degrees. Wow. Yeah, they had to hurry me into the medical tent. They had to give me chicken broth, warm me back up. So, yeah, it was emotional, but uh, I was a little in the fog of war there. Sure. <laughs> a rush of reality right, uh, right at, the, at the end. Wow. Yeah, that that's amazing. Kudos to you. If the story stops right there, that's an amazing story. I love it. Absolutely yeah, love good. it. So I, I do want to talk about and we'll kind of bounce around a little bit. Yeah. This certainly won't be linear. Uh, you have a lot going on. You have a lot, um, I think, that's amazing to be able to talk about and try and fit it in. We'll try and fit it in, but I don't want to glaze over anything. Yep. I'd rather do a deep dive on something, and we'll maybe we'll come back to something else. Cool. Um, but And we'll, we'll maybe kind of marry these two things. But I want you to talk a little bit about your time in the Marines uh, because you have a lot of lessons that you've shared. We've heard you speak. Uh, you know, of course, we've had you know conversations uh, you know, individually, and we've uh, I've taken some things away that are are very interesting that you've learned uh, in the military that you've applied with Delta Life Fitness. Uh, and so, talk a little bit about your time in the Marines, and then I, I, that will probably lead us to you and your wife Kristen starting Delta Life Fitness. Delta Life Fitness. Excuse me. Let me, yeah. let me enunciate there. Um, so, fourteen years, thirteen years. Yeah, in the Marines? Right, right in between 13 and 14. Yeah, okay. So, Almost 14. So you enlisted right out of high school, right? Right out of high school, 18 years Texas old. guy? Yep. Yep, okay. All right, so talk about that. Talk about your your, your kind of your career path, your projection in, in the military. Yeah, 2003, it's right after, you know, it's right after 9-11, so that's what a lot of our generation did, like, right out of high school, especially from a little town in East Texas, um, went straight into the Marine Corps, went straight into being a door gunner, a uh, helicopter door gunner. And did three deployments with them to Iraq in 05, 06, and 07. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, read the book Extreme uh, Ownership by Jocko, the uh, Navy mm-hmm. SEAL. Heard of it. Jocko uh, Willink, though? Yeah, yeah. Heard of him. Love so his podcast. Almost all the stories he's talking about in Ramadi, uh, I was there for that whole thing. I was there for Ramadi. I was there. I was on the wow. Syrian and Jordanian border in 2005 for Operation Matador. A lot of the stuff we did out uh, right on the Syrian border. Uh, in early 2005 and then a lot of Ramadi stuff in 2006 and then two, by 2007 it actually calmed down quite a bit it's more of a policing effort at that point came back home Kristen and I got married in between my 2006 2007 deployment I believe uh, came back home and she's like hey you can stay in um, and keep deploying if you want to be single but if you want to <laughs> but if you want to be <laughs> married over. yeah you gotta take like cause at that point like I was deploying for seven to eight months. I would come home. They'd send me to Arizona to train for a month or two. I'd come back, and then I'd go right back overseas. Like I was, I was in the, I was in the states for maybe five months. Two of that, I'm training. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, I'm all late night hours at the squadron working. Like so, me and Kristen didn't get to spend a lot of time together, you know, um, in those days. So when I got back, I took a non-deployable unit. As part of my reenlistment package, I'll take Yuma, Arizona, where I got to do search and rescue. 
which that was really awesome. Like, so finally I got to a place where I kind of got to see the other side of the Marine Corps, the career building side, what, what the non-war side of the Marine Corps is. And, and, and on that, it's kind of like a nine to five job. You know, you have, it's great leadership stuff. You're still learning, but, um, you know, we, we closed up shop by like noon every Friday, which was great. Got to do some of the coolest flying through the deserts of Arizona and California. Got to do a lot of search and rescue type things. Got to repel out of helicopters into rivers, all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff that I'm not sure we should have done, but we did. Yeah. <clears throat> you live to tell about it, so it's a great story, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, from there, from Search and Rescue, I did. I applied for a commissioning program to go from an enlisted to an officer, so went to MESEP Prep School out in Quantico, Virginia, then got to go to Texas A&M. You have to pick an NROTC-approved school. Went to Texas A&M, earned my commission, then back to flight school, then back to the Fleet Marine Corps out on the West Coast before finally getting out. Yeah, okay. So so you enlisted, you essentially progressed through, you were able to go through officer training school, and you commissioned. So talk about your time. <clears throat> How is your career different? Obviously, there's a big difference. Um, I have one brother that retired as an enlisted Army. Um, he, he, was, he was enlisted his entire career. And I have one brother who is an officer in the Air Force. So very different you know, career paths, very different opportunities. So talk about how your career changed uh, and what you enjoyed about being enlisted and what you enjoyed about uh, you know, the differences and what you enjoyed about being an officer. Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, to be fair, I only had four or five years as an officer compared to a lot longer enlisted. Sure. So, And none of that was really... Uh, I didn't get to do any what I call like real Marine stuff. I never did a deployment as an officer, so I don't have that much experience leading Marines as an officer as opposed to when I was enlisted. So don't have as much context there. Um, there's, you know, what was cool about the path I took is that the Marine Corps, if you read uh, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek or any of those books, I mean, so many of them are based on leadership principles that the Marines, Marines are really good at that. Like they, I, I say it all the time, like, the squadron I was in, right? Like our helicopter and jet pilot mechanics. These aren't engineers. These are 18-year-old kids that graduate high school. They go through a four-week mechanic school. And then they're in OJT ripping out Harrier engines and replacing Harrier engines. You know how good your systems and how well you have to have documented the processes to be mm-hmm. able to make that work? I mean, think about us as entrepreneurs, how hard it is to get an employee and bring them in and onboarding them and, and get them. <clears throat> yeah. They do this every three years, basically. They get a whole new group of 18-year-old kids that they've got to teach how to replace Harrier engines. That like that always blows my mind. Like yeah, that's so, I learned a lot about how to create systems, how to create processes, how to create replicable models off of that training we got from the enlisted side. Mm-hmm. That's I learned a lot about that. But what was cool about my path, mm-hmm. I got to go through boot camp, I got to go through all my enlisted training, do my deployments with them. Then <clears throat> going back through the officer side, I got to go through all the one of the greatest leadership courses in the world the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. I got to go through all of that training again. I got to go through officer candidate school, boot camp for a second time. It's kind of crazy. The basic school, that's a six-week school out in Quantico. Um, and you're right there by the Pentagon. You take a lot of trips to the Pentagon. You have generals that are always coming down speaking. It's like a six-month leadership course mm-hmm. where you're leading your peers. You're doing all kinds of fun stuff that way. Uh, th- that was the cool thing about the way I took I got to do a lot of schooling, a lot of leadership. At this time, I was already reading leadership books, and I was seeing – 
here's what's cool about me too. Like I kind of sucked as an enlisted Marine. Like I was just <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't know anything about leadership. I was never the fastest. I was never the toughest. I was never the strongest. I was always kind of the bottom of the pack scored really low in all the schools I ever went through. You know what the difference was like throughout my journey though, of going through Texas A&M before going through all the officer training, I started getting into all the stuff that I can see on you guys' bookshelf. I started reading these books. I started learning these leadership principles. I read How to Win Friends and Influence People. I understand the importance of remembering people's names. So I got to then, as a guy who usually was a subpar Marine, I got to, I didn't, I didn't get any stronger. I didn't get any tougher. I just read books. And I got to take that knowledge and apply it, and I got a second chance at it going through the officer side. And just by applying a lot of those principles that you get out of these books, I started ranking like number one in my platoon, number one in my class. I graduated first in my class in flight school. I didn't get any smarter. I didn't get any better at running. Like I literally just read leadership books and applied them the second time around. So there's a lot to that. Now, do you think as, as it went on, do you think did maturity have anything to do with that? You know, being, being a young guy, being 18, 19, 20 years old, I mean, I remember not, I certainly was not in the Marines when I was that age, but I was playing college baseball. And, you know, that's, it's a great time to be responsibly irresponsible. <laughs> you know, I think that might be a good, good phrase to put that. And, but I'm thinking back now, being 30, you know, 33 at this point, I would be a much better, oh, right. you know, uh, yeah. whatever I was doing at 21 <laughs> yeah. or 20 years old, I would be much better knowing what I know because I have the focus, I have yeah. the maturity. Do you think that any, any of that played into it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't even know if it was the age as much as when I was a young, when I was a young Lance Corporal, like if I mess up and made bad life decisions, it's just Josh that pays for it. I'm eating ramen. Like as I got older, I made bad decisions. Kristen, my three kids sure. got to pay for it. So like one, you know, I don't even know if age as much as just how many people you have relying on you. And mm-hmm. you, it definitely happens once you become an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. once you, once you create a business, and you're the only person that suffers, you can kind of be reckless, you can make decisions, you you don't, it doesn't keep you up as much at night. Mm-hmm. When you have people depending on that paycheck based on your decisions, same thing, right? Like yeah. when you have those people depending on you, that's where it, it forces, that's probably what forces you to dive into books and learning and wanting to be the best version you can because you have all these people depending on you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I, that's a great, um, it's a great point to make. And that kind of segues us, so you're still, in the military, still in the Marines, and around 2000, what, what was the year that you and your wife deter- decided that, okay, we're going to start this, we're going to start Delta Life Fitness, we're going we're gonna to start this. Where did that come from? Where did the inspiration come from? Yeah, so 2009, I'm in College Station, I'm in Texas A&M, the Marine Corps at this point has made me a PTI, which is a physical training instructor. Whenever you go, when they put you on a MESA program where you go back to school, I'm still getting paid at this point as a staff sergeant going to school full-time at Texas A&M. Well, you still have to work for the Marine Corps in some capacity. So I was attached to the uh, NROTC battalion at Texas A&M, and I had to work for them. I had to teach classes. I had to train the Corps Corps cadet guys that had Marine Corps scholarships. I'd have to go on weekend ops with them. And there's an obstacle course at Texas A&M. There's like a full-blown – there's a shooting range in the the bottom floor of the uh, NROTC building. Like – it's it, yeah. they've got everything. So I, we had to lead them through and teach them weapons handling, how to shoot a pistol, gun range stuff. We had to do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. My main job was to work on uh, to make sure I had to run the PT sessions every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I had to run our big group training. Well, we had started a Cub Scout group uh, for my youngest or my oldest son at the time at an elementary in uh, College Station, Texas. 
So at one of the Cub Scout meetings, one of the Cub Scout moms asked me if I would run a boot camp in the park like I was doing for the Corps Cadet kids. And uh, thought that was kind of funny. But uh, January 17th, 2010, we ran the very first ever Delta Life boot camp class in a elementary parking lot in College Station, Texas. <laughs> Love that. Now, where did it go from there in terms of you know, was, you know elementary kids and whatever? Where did it? And we'll probably fast forward a little bit here because I don't want to glaze over anything. Yeah. But it's a women's boutique. It's it's, it's specialized for for women. Where did it go? along the way from it kind of just started like yeah sure i'll do that on my spare time okay and then how did it get to the model that it is now yeah so the very first one i did we did for free we got to the end of it and they were like what do we do now and i was so i started looking i started researching on like boot camps and adventure boot camp was really popular at the time and they were charging like 300 dollars a class i was like well i'll do it for 100 bucks right <clears throat> so i put out some flyers and just told people i was going to do one in the morning and one in the evening 20 ladies showed up, like 20 ladies and like one dude showed up to the morning class and like 20 people showed up to the evening class. They all paid a hundred bucks. Wow. That was, we like me and so me and Kristen are out there in the park that evening and we're like, we just made four grand. Like I think that was more than our Marine Corps paycheck at the time was, you know what I mean? We were like, did we just double our revenue? Like we kind of saw just that, that initially was like, wow, that's awesome. This is stuff I already love doing and people are willing to pay for this. And they thought they were getting a great deal because the other boot camps in town were 300 bucks. So I was like, this is going to be cool. So we quickly scaled that, went into our first building. We got a little 1200 square foot building in college station. I grew that really fast, went to a 3000 square foot building in college station, um, and ran it there the entire time I was at Texas A&M. At, when I had to leave Texas A&M to go back to the Marine Corps, we had to sell the gym. We sold it to a CrossFit. Uh, that's when Robbie and Cassie came on board, my brother and sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And we recorded and made an online version. We were like, well, if we can't do brick and mortar anymore, let's do mm-hmm. uh, info products. We're just starting to get very popular. It's 2012. We took off a full week. We went into the studio right before we sold it. We filmed for like a week straight, and we made an info product. We launched wow. it all. We launched it all over the world. We were so proud of ourselves. We sold one in like we ten bucks a month, and you could be uh, on Delta Life Bootcamp online. Uh, we had a lady in South Africa. We had a lady in Australia. We were like, "That's it. We're millionaires. We win." Yeah. Like this is gonna. There's no end to this. <laughs> we got to like a hundred members, and we like never added another one. <laughs> like we didn't know anything. Anyway, but what what that did, like that taking that little bit of action. Some guy, some writer for Forbes saw our website and saw what we were doing, watched some of our videos. He's like, "Hey, you mind if we give you like, mind if I give you a free coaching session?" We we're like, "Great." So me and Robbie hop on this call with this guy in 2012, and he starts talking about personas and picking a target market. And one thing about me and Robbie is uh, <laughs> we're very coachable. Like when somebody that's ahead of us tells us to do something, we just go all in. So he's he was talking on this coaching call about how we need to just pick the be- the customer we can serve the best and kind of go all in. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, that's it, all women. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of where the all women thing went. Okay. And then, like you said, to to save time from there, uh, eventually. When I left for the Marine Corps for that seven-month stint that I had to leave to, Robbie and Cassie opened one down in southeast Texas. As soon as me and Kristen got to Florida, um, she was going to go work at Chili's. And I was like, there's no way. Not that there's anything against that, but with everything we've learned, everything we have understand about how to run a – like, let me run a Facebook ad for you. Mm-hmm. Just do one here in the park in Florida, and if people show up off this Facebook ad, we'll, we'll give it another shot in brick and mortar. We ran a Facebook ad, like 30 ladies showed up. 
Wow. Uh, yeah, because the whole time I was gone, by the way, for those seven months, I, we figured out the fitness part. The whole time I was gone for those seven months that I was training with the Marines, like every second that we weren't training, all the other kids were like binge watching House of Cards marathons. I was just studying like online marketing. Like, how do I figure out Facebook ads? Right. So when I got to Florida, we run that. So we're running, and we eventually opened a studio in Florida. Cassie and Robbie are open one in Texas. We scaled through a licensing model before eventually turning it into a franchise in 2015. 2016, we kind of shut down everything, rebuilt it all to be what you would see today, the replicable model, the actual, the really nice $400,000 studios that we're building now. So that's that's the short version of the evolution there. Okay, yeah. And that leads me to my next question. <clears throat> so so from there, it's it seems that it's scaling pretty quickly. You have, well, there's like seven states, eight states that you guys are in, like 22 locations. So when did it go from one location in Texas, one location in Florida, to what was your third location, your your tenth? How quickly? And where did where did you start finding these people? What was the connection uh, for? I think you're you're in Washington and Oregon and California and Arizona across yeah. the Gulf Coast, Florida. I think you're in like Tennessee and. Um, Anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let you, I don't work for the company, <laughs> so I'll let you talk about it. So it's funny. Um, I've talked to Elizabeth about this before. Yeah. We thought we were we thought we were odd. We thought we were different. And you know, now that I've been in the franchise industry, I run Texas Franchise Radio. Yeah. Like you said, like I really understand the franchise industry on in a way I didn't before. You think like when you drive down the road and you see these brands and you look at them. I don't know if you're like me. I, I come from a small town. I have a small town mentality. I'm always trying to overcome that. Uh, I really do believe that once you break through that belief, like Steve Jobs says, like once you believe that everything around you was created by people no smarter than us, you can do anything, like that's true. When we drive down the road and we see these brands, they didn't start how you think they did. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times they were just some dude with a really crappy product who took a chance and it evolved into what you see today when you sure. drive down the road. So mm -hmm. we, we thought we were really different because yeah, it was Cassie and Robbie with the one warehouse studio in Texas. Robbie calls it the deer stand because it was horrible. <laughs> Like, he's like, I don't even know why I let my wife go there. It's, like, unsafe. You know, I'm surprised she didn't need a tetanus shot to go in there. Um, and then we had the one studio in Florida, and my father took a trip out to Florida to come see us on the beach, and he was looking at what we were doing. He saw our P&Ls, and he was like, holy cow. He went around our gym, took pictures of how everything was laid out. He was like, do you think you guys could scale, like, how we deliver the workouts? So I was like, yeah, we'll pull up something online. I, I had that knowledge from, even though it failed, the online version, I learned so much about how to build online databases and how to put the workouts mm -hmm. online. Like you always learn something from when you cycle, right? Like yes. when you, when you hit a failure or a cycle, like I wouldn't have been able to scale it the way we did if I didn't know that knowledge from the online experiment, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. So we started posting, we scaled like how to load the workouts and stuff online. Dad goes around the warehouse, takes pictures of where everything's done. I ran the Facebook ads for him in Texas from Florida my father opened unit number three. Then one of my best friends I went to high school with saw my dad open one, called my dad and was like, hey, how's that thing doing? How much money did you make? Dad's like, I've never stepped a foot in there. Here's how much money I made. That guy was like, holy crap, I'll take one too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so then he goes and opens one, and now we start scaling back in, and how do we how do we start taking advantage of economic economies of scale? We had a one-page license agreement It was that I wrote mm -hmm. in crayon practically. Like it was... <laughs> It was it was horrible, right? Uh, it was a one-page license agreement. We finally pay a lawyer. 
to draft us up like an actual six-page license agreement that's a little more legit that actually says we own the branding and everything else. Because at the time, it was just you can do whatever you want with all the logos and everything. And these are my friends and family. <clears throat> Then we figure out we're starting to run into a bit of a pseudo franchise. If you give, they're very clear on what constitutes the difference between a license and a franchise. If you collect more than $600 a year in royalties, if they use your brand or logo, and then if you give them support. And that third one is the one that's very vague. So if you think about CrossFit, they do pay more than 600 in royalties and they use the logo but they don't have any support from headquarters of CrossFit outside of that. They're free to do, they have no support and they're not mandated with quality control. Like you can do it in a garage, you can have the most you can have a 10 million dollar facility, right? We want we got to a point where we wanted to be able to give the support to make our people successful. We wanted to be able to provide that for them. Mm-hmm. Um because that benefits everybody. Like, if they're successful, we're going to be successful. We right. didn't want to just let them go open one, it fails, go open one, it fails. Like, And with the license model, like, and we had some of that early on with licenses, and that can happen. But we wanted to be able to create the franchise, so then we went and paid to get an actual franchise disclosure document, a franchise agreement. So started with a one-page license agreement to a six-page license agreement to a franchise agreement. The first time we ever went to the International Franchise Association... We're sitting there, and somebody asked me how many units we're at, and we're like, you know, 10. They're like, okay, so you're just getting out of the family and friends stage. Probably went from a license to a franchise, and I was like, how'd you know that? <laughs> and he's like, dude, that's how every franchise starts. <laughs> like, we thought we were special, and he was like, go look up the story on Dairy Queen. So I went and looked up the story on Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen did the exact same thing. There's still there's still Dairy Queens here in Texas. They're operating under a one-page license agreement that can still offer whatever they want. So, like, I'm telling you, when you drive down the road and see these big, fancy brands, yeah. they didn't start there, mm-hmm. right? Like, somebody took a chance, and it evolved over time to get to where it is. So we scheduled to answer your question. Sorry. I know I kind of beat around on that one. Uh, we got to probably, I guess like 18 studios that were licensed model. And that could have been anything. I mean, that could be a really nice studio. That could have been a warehouse before we initially turned it into the franchise and where we started to catch. And you're about to see it really. I mean, it's just this for this year, 2018 and next year has really been when we kind of turned it back on. Cause now we're just under 30 units mm-hmm. that are either open or under development. Um, and sales are coming in very readily now, but we wouldn't have been able to do that. We took in again, coaching. We've always paid for a lot of coaching. We took in a franchise consultant, Lynette McKee. She was VP of franchising for Duncan brands. Brilliant lady. She made us shut everything down in 2016. And it's like, we got to get all these best in class practices. We got to build a replicable model. We've got to build all the franchise systems. Like we've got to be able to build these every single time, the exact same way. We've got to simplify operations to where we can scale Everything, scale product delivery, scale operations, scale the way that we market, scale the way that we train our staff. Like, it's a lot of things you don't think about. Mm -hmm. But it's funny, like, after going through that exercise now, like, my brain only works in scale. Like, every time I look at somebody's business, if I want to be a part of it or get in with them, like, I'm only looking at how can we scale it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, yeah. Now, how do you... How do you be sure that... uh, Or how do you uh, ensure that the, the quality is there... Uh, so you're in seven different states, you're to almost 30 different locations. How often do you travel 
around and meet with these people and give them the support that you you talked about or is that something that you try to keep the overhead low on and you, you have skype sessions a lot talk a little bit about that yeah so that's good it's in the, the correct answer is we haven't done a good job of that right and that's something we're acting we're acting really hard on now to try to do better to do a better job of <clears throat> and that's one of those systems that we had no idea what that was right sure. like we're going to give them this thing and they're going to go do it and it's going to be great uh, that's not fair to the franchisee. That's not, you know, we shouldn't do that because, you know, it's, you're not going to have the same quality standard there. So when you look at brands that are where we are, you know, the 2030 mark, unless they're a second time franchise or like if I ever do another franchise, like when we do another franchise, it'll be, it'll already be at this stage when it launches. It doesn't have to go through those learning pains again. Right. Um, but we've had to learn a lot on that, and we're just now. So when we first did it, Andy, we really created, we really created what was a, a gym back office. We didn't. Everybody told us that franchising is a completely separate business model, which you just alluded to some of that. Okay, do you save costs? Are you are you going to spend money on field support and build out these systems and these quality control? And how do you get Chick Fil A service every time you go into one? Because we all like sounds great. I would love. You know, would you love your staff to act like Chick-fil-A staff or act like McDonald's staff? And we all know the answer to that, but and we all think we would have the Chick-fil-A, but how do you actually scale that? And you can't just say it's on the franchisees. That's not fair, right? Mm-hmm. So once you start to understand that it is a separate business model, and now we've got to take into account stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just a gym back office. It's its own business model. And the economic model has to support being able to do field support visits. We've got to build out all these training and expectations around customer service. Kristen's been doing that for the last three months just redoing all the customer service training eye contact all these different things so that we can better scale that when i first did it i was confused about what scale meant you may have heard me talk about this before i always thought that i always thought that whenever you scale something or whenever you <coughs> do it it's you know you, you have three components to business every business right you have sales and marketing you have the product or program delivery, and you have operations. I always thought you get those three good, and then you scale it, right? Like, <clears throat> I fine-tune my product, I fine-tune my sales and marketing, and I fine-tune my operations, and then we scale. That's not true. Because every single time, like, when you get those three right, that'll get you from one to two, mm-hmm. you know? And then you have two, oh, you got to figure out which one's the weakest. Okay, we, you know, now that we have two... Our program delivery is not really scaling so well, so we got to go fix that. You fix that, next quarter it's going to be operations, you fix that. Then you go from two to five, all three have to be redone. Five will get you to 15, all three have to be redone. 15 will get you to 100, so like, and now I don't get frustrated anymore, like now I just notice it, right? Like we just redid everything in 16, like I was telling you, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing, we're on a growth run, and this growth run is going to be great, but we're having to, but now we're having to figure out Okay, when we had just a few and they were all friends and family, you know, making sure everybody was doing the same thing and quality control was easy. They're friends and family. I can look on Facebook and see, are they, you know, are they doing crazy things or is it what we're supposed to be doing? But right now we're on a growth run and I don't know which three of those it's going to mess up, but three of them, you know, one or all three are going to get messed up and we're going to have to keep working every quarter to figure out which one is messed up and fix it because... This growth run we're on right now at 30 is not going to be how we have to operate at 100. So we're always, every quarter, we're looking at what piece are we missing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that that brings up a topic that I heard you talk about that I'd never, I'd never heard anyone talk about this. Again, I'm not, I wasn't in the military, but the OODA loop. And you talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
and it seems like and and, and uh, I, try, I try to do my research here. Observe, orient, decide, act. That's it. Okay, and so it seems like you you, you go from one to two and you do the OODA loop again. You go from two to five, like you talked about. You do the OODA loop again, five to ten, and fifteen and, and thirty. How much do you use that? Is that something that that you live by? <coughs> Is that like in the basically in the, in the Bible of uh, Delta Life Fitness, like guys, we, we, this is what we have to do. We got to go back to OODA loop. We really do, and we we and we never call it OODA loop. Like it's not, you know, we don't sit down and think: are we observing? Are we orienting? Are we deciding? And are we acting? Mm-hmm. But we do realize. Actually, last night we had a we had a late meeting at six thirty last night. We have this huge we have this huge offer on the table right now. We're trying to make this really big decision that's going to push the company one way or the other. Uh, and that, that actually, I talked to my whole team about this last night. I was like, this is the thing that stops entrepreneurs, right? Like, we're at a point where we have to make this decision, and the weight of the decision is huge, mm-hmm. you know? And <clears throat> where we keep the philosophy is that we, we've been through enough iterations of this now that we know that we have to just decide. We can't, like like I told you about the Battle of Anzio, where they just stall down the beach because they're scared of what happens if sure. they push. Yeah. Um, that can be some of the hardest things as an entrepreneur, but not deciding is horrible mm-hmm. and it'll slow you down. So <clears throat> although we have this really big decision, we came to an agreement last night, we made a decision, we're moving forward on it today. So we don't ever call it a new loop, but we're always knowing that if we're not deciding, we're staying still, you know, sure. and we're not, we're not making a decision right, wrong, or indifferent. You have to put something back out to the market, get feedback and then put it back out, get feedback and put it back out. You have to, if you're staying still, you're dying. Everybody talks about that all the time. Like yeah. you have to get it out there, make feedback, reiterate and go. So we don't call it an, an OODA loop, but yes, we're always, we always, we get nervous if we've hit something and we're not deciding, we know that's bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I want to, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your, your budding, uh, public speaking <laughs> career opportunities, what, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, if anyone is listening and you haven't seen or heard Josh uh, give give your your talk, please go check it out. It's it's incredible. You just lit my hair on fire a couple Fridays ago, a couple months ago now. Uh, when you the first time I ever heard you talk about it, you're optimistically optimistic. Um, you know, manifesto or whatever you whatever you want to call. It. I don't yeah. know. Which, you're you're you have the ambition to do a TED talk. Yes. And I don't know if it's, if that's going to be the basis of it or you're still trying to work it out, but either way, yeah, you're talking about optimistically optimistic. I think you have like five or six principles that you, you kind of talk about under there. So yep. talk a little bit about that. How, how in the world are you optimistically optimistic? Cause, cause you are, and I, and I totally believe it. So talk a little bit about that. I don't I mean, I think a little bit of it is, uh, <clears throat> like a little bit, it's just inherent. Like, me and my business partner Robbie have talked about this a lot. I don't know if uh, my dad was. My dad is one of the greatest humans on the planet. Like works really hard, mm-hmm. but he's always uh, like he's like you bring home a ninety two on a report card and he wants to know why it's not a ninety eight. You know, so I think like I was always trying to find a way to tell my dad a better way than it was. Right, like I was always. <laughs> I don't know, and so I guess that just got my brain wired for like. <laughs> I never look or even take in any of the negative and I just, I'm always trying to look for the best outcome. And so, but I've kind of embraced that as I've learned and forged my leadership style through the Marine Corps and reading books. I've just learned that the leadership style that works the best for me 
is not sitting back and letting the world come at you and just reporting on what happens to you with a victim stance, but taking a proactive stance to create the outcomes you want to create mm-hmm. and then bringing the best out of the people around you. And I, I see the best way to do Like you can't, how can you do that unless you can visualize the positive outcomes you want? So I'm just, I'm super pumped up about just being optimistically optimistic and, and seeing the best way forward and then being able to take action on those favorable outcomes that you want to produce, mm-hmm. you know? So what are the, what are the, is the six principles that you kind of hit on? Action, yeah. belief, mm-hmm. confidence, visualization, gratitude, and growth. Okay. All right. Now, how do you put those into, what are some of the applications for you specifically? Yeah, action is what I was just telling you guys about. Like, so I think when you sit back, like it's easy to get into a victim stance and complain about what's happening to you. And that's a lack of action, a lack of being willing to get up and proactively take control of your life. You know, I talked about the book with Jocko about extreme ownership. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to take action. You have to decide. You have, you know, how many people sit on their couch and wait for opportunity to come to them? Like, not going to happen, right? Like, you've got to get out in the world. You've got to take action. You got, you guys know. Like, you got to do, you're doing it right now. Like, you're putting this podcast together. You have no idea where this could lead, right? Like, somebody could hear this one day, one podcast you guys have done, reach out to you. And it may not even be the podcast. Like, the podcast may go away a year from now. But somebody may hear one episode, reach out to you, and may land some opportunity for you. You have no idea. Sure. But that opportunity could never manifest itself if you guys are, I mean, it's it's late in the evening. You guys could very easily be chilling out watching some Netflix right now, right? <laughs> but you're in here still working, putting action into the world. And because of that, it's going to manifest some positive outcome at some point. So action is just, you, it, it, action starts everything. Mm-hmm. And then the belief. I really believe that Steve Job, Jobs quote. Like every, and I, I used to not. This is why I'm so big on this. Like I used to just, when you take the victim stance, you kind of look at something somebody else has created and you say, well, man, they must have started with a lot of money. Their parents probably gave it to them. Like, you know, they, they got to go to an Ivy League school and get an MBA. I could never be a Fortune 500 company CEO. But I've, I've seen it now. Like, I grew up in Vider, Texas with nothing. And you can create those outcomes, but you have to believe it. And now we've created a boutique fitness you know, franchise that we're building $400,000 studios that are state-of-the-art and they're amazing. I would have never thought we could have done something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's super important to me that people hear my message that understand that if you take that action and get going, believe that you can, like, actually believe it. Don't say it like, yeah, we're going to do something great. Like, actually believe and understand that you can start with no time, no money, no schooling, no education. You can start with nothing, that's the greatest thing about America. You can start with nothing and you can create. Now, it takes a lot of work and a lot of action and a lot of risk and you've got to sacrifice a lot of Netflix nights, but it can actually happen, right? And then the confidence. When I talk about the confidence, because like you've heard me say, like that's free currency that you can give to everybody around you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And why not? Like ev- The world's going to crap on everybody and tell them, you know, I know you've told me your story. Like, it's scary when you go to tell the world mm-hmm. that I'm going to take this risk and I'm going to do this crazy thing. And those people who love us, quote unquote, like, are always going to be the ones that are giving us that. Uh, my dad, again, like, my dad was so upset when I told him I was getting out of the Marine Corps. Like, you're not going to be able to provide for your family. You know, uh, you're, you've got six years left, son. Like, just retire from the Marine Corps. You're a yeah. pilot in the Marine Corps. Just retire. Uh, that's not what I wanted to do. Like, yeah. I wanted to do all these things we're getting to talk about now, right? So confidence is free currency we can give to all those around us. And visualization, 
That one's absolutely. Like, you can't create positive outcomes. You can't create the world you want to live in unless you can visualize it first. Like, you have to. Before every encounter you go into, before every big meeting, whatever it is, you have to visualize the best possible way forward from that. And then growth, you just, you know, I don't know if there's any way to get any of this done if you don't have a growth mindset. You've constantly got to surround yourself with, with, with smart people. you got to get into groups like Inspired Leaders or other groups. Uh, as soon as you change the date on that, that'll be great. <laughs> you got to read books. you just you got to stay open with a growth mindset. And then gratitude, gratitude to me is literally the most important. I mean, maybe that's because it's at the stage I'm at. You know, I would assume that... I assume I would assume that if I'm still at my nine to five and I haven't taken the risk and the big jump yet, then action's probably the most important still, mm-hmm. right? Like I gotta take action to create those opportunities that are gonna get me out. But once you are out and you're living that life on your terms, the bad thing is that it can all go away. Like it's a risk. Like every like franchising can become illegal tomorrow. I could be hit with another we had two hurricanes last year that hit both of our where our gyms are. Harvey hit Texas, and the other one hit all of our gyms in Florida. Shut down all royalties coming into us for like two and a half months, you know, because we can't charge them. Their gyms are flooded. Right. You know what I mean? So there's things that – so once that happens, like – you, ha- I, gratitude is the most important for me because I get in my own head. I start getting scared. It slows down my OODA loop. I stop making decisions because I'm scared that I'm going to lose everything we've built, right? So I have to ground myself in that gratitude every day. I have to remember that, you know, if it does go away and if I've got to go get a job with Everson Cooper next week, then, you know, maybe We'd love to have you. <laughs> we would hire you in a minute. In one second. We'd pay you more than me. <laughs> So, you know what I mean? Like if I have to go, if I have to go get a job two Mondays from now, yeah. I'm still living as one of the luckiest humans that have ever walked this planet. And so like when I when I like remind myself of that, like it just it calms down all those fears and lets me get back to operating. So that's the whole principle of optimistically optimistic. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of piggyback on your point there about just being being incredibly uh, having having an incredible amount of gratitude, I think you tell a really cool analogy or metaphor or whatever it is about. You know, kids now, they want to be YouTubers. And, you know, 25 years ago, you would say, what the heck is that? This is, that's stupid. <laughs> but you have the attitude of like, no, that's amazing. Because yeah. that's how much we've progressed as a society. That's how many opportunities we've been able to create for people. So so tell, tell a little bit, tell that, um, tell it in your own words. Yeah, the, the I just I think like as a as a humanity, we've been fighting for these opportunities for a long time. Like right, like since the Magna Carta, like creating America, land of opportunity where people could come and start these new things. And then every generation's goal, like what do we all want? Like every generation before us, and and I know I'm doing it. Like you want to provide, you want to hand this country over, or you want to give more opportunity. That's a bit like. Generation, the greatest generation, going to World War II for us, World War One and World War Two, and you know just how many men died fighting in World War Two. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they go and fight and die? So we wouldn't be speaking German right now or Japanese or whatever, and we would have the freedom to still live in the land of opportunity. So then why, if all of our generations have sacrificed so much and fought so hard to give future generations a better life, why, when we get to that next generation where they have better opportunities, like we talk about being a YouTuber, like if the, cur- if the current reality in this country now is that kids can learn how to be a YouTuber and give enough value to the world of YouTube, they can demand enough attention to where they can get compensated to be a YouTuber, if we sacrificed all that for so long 
to give them that opportunity, and now it's here, and we say, oh, well, this generation sucks, and they're not willing to work for it. Like, how much sense does that make? Like, that's crazy. We work so hard to provide this. So now that we live, now that we keep creating better and better opportunities for future generations, that now it's an actual possibility that my kids could be YouTubers, like, why would we not celebrate that? If my kid wants to be a YouTuber, that's awesome. It's going to take a lot of hard work. Like, good luck. It's, you know, and they, our kids probably don't understand that's going to be harder than even getting a normal job. It is mm-hmm. like the amount of time and energy and effort you have to put into that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's tough. But if you can do it, awesome. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I love that. All right. I want to be respectful of your time. <clears throat> Talk about your morning. Uh, one more thing. Talk about what, what does your morning look like? Yeah. So this is one that uh, I think like any entrepreneur with everything else, you cycle on this. I can tell you what my best morning opportunity routine, but I get in bad slumps too. Like uh, right before the Ironman, I was back in that like sleeping in late and, you know, not, it's funny. You hear it all the time, like really good habits, your routine. I saw it. I was at the Keller Williams ribbon cutting yesterday mm-hmm. and there was a thing on the wall that said like, it's not about how many deals you close. It's about your daily schedule. And it's, it's so incredibly true. Like everything comes down to how disciplined you are. But a lot of times we set those disciplines in because I used to have an amazingly controlled schedule with my morning routine when I had to get up on the West coast at four o'clock in the morning go for a run, come back. I did the Miracle Morning. Have you ever heard of that? Absolutely, read the book. Yeah, Hal Elrod. We got to, I got to see him speak live in San Diego, too. Wow. Uh, so I read the book, Hal, Hal Elrod wrote Miracle Morning. I would do that every morning. Then I'm taking, like, I'm on the West Coast, so I'm three hours behind our Florida gyms, or ahead of our Florida gym. so I'm taking field support calls with them at, like, 5 a.m. to go into the squadron to fly by 8 a.m., work a full day with them, right, get home and go back to, like, creating systems for Delta Life in my little house in California. Like, so I came from that where I'm working literally nonstop, you know, from 4 to midnight to when I got out, like, I almost felt guilty. Like, now I have time. You know, I do watch a little Netflix now and then, and it's like every time I do, I feel super guilty. Sure. You know, like, and I had to get, I had to get used to that. I had to get used to where, like, I mean, I mean, I, I was bad. Like, I would turn on Netflix and I'd be like, I'm letting, I can't let my franchisees know that I'm watching Netflix right now because surely there should be something I should be doing for them. Sure. You know, so I had to kind of get through that. But right now, my current morning routine, now that I have more of a balanced life. If there is such thing, Bob Milner talks about having harmony, not balance. But uh, now I have more of a harmonized life. Uh, still wake up super early. So like this morning, I woke up at 4.30. Uh, Robbie, my business partner, best friend, brother-in-law, picked me up at 4.45. We went to F3. It's uh, Faith Fellowship and Fitness. We work out at Town Green Park. So from 5.15 to 6, we worked out at Town Green Park. Went back home. That's where I try to get in, like, my gratitude. As soon as I get back home, I sit down and try to do a little reading, like, just my time. Mm-hmm. I'm super creative at that time, too, because it's early. I just got done working out. I, I have to do my gratitude. I have to, because just with everything I have out going on right now, like, it's scary. Like, I take the gratitude thing <laughs> really serious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, then uh, Kristen brings our oldest to school. She comes back. She's just finishing up her workout. We kind of slap hands. I bring... Uh, my youngest to school with Robbie's youngest, I pick or his oldest, I pick them up, uh, bring them to school, come back. Now we're talking, it's like 8 o'clock. 
uh, my work day, quote unquote, starts at like nine. So from eight to nine, I'm lining up my calendar, making sure I didn't miss anything, looking if there was anything super important in the inbox. I miss a lot of things in my inbox. <laughs> you guys are probably familiar with that. Uh, try to make sure I didn't miss anything. Try to try to line up and okay, what are the things that no kidding have to get done today? Right, right. Like I bang those out, <laughs> right? Like, uh, and then I start my actual work day and meetings around like nine o'clock. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, the Miracle Morning, uh, I, I think, was a game changer, definitely, for me. I, I I think I've naturally always been a morning person, but never really embraced it, I think, until here now, where I could choose to embrace it, which is kind of weird. Um, but, yeah, working from home, being an entrepreneur, having a flexible flexible schedule, yeah. Uh, still, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a 5 a.m. kind of thing. And I love that you talk about gratitude because I think that has been, at least for me, I certainly can't speak for Elizabeth, that actually has been a really big game changer because it does put perspective on things. And even when things maybe not, aren't going to your expectations or your, or your day's just been crushed by other stuff or whatever, and if you can go back to you know the gratitude, I think it does. It kind of helps reset some things. But like, all right, look, it's going to be yeah. fine. We're going to be cool. Yes. Yeah. You know, very, very thankful for for what we have, regardless of you know the, yeah. the silly things that are going on. It's it's so big for me. Like I was, yeah. I saw you we were up late last night with a big decision, and this is a few hundred thousand dollars on the table. You know, which would hurt really bad if we lost it. Sure. Uh, and so you know, whenever I start, you you start thinking about it could go good, but we could lose several hundred thousand. Um, but then you just have one thought of, yeah, but all the kids are great. We live in a great neighborhood. Like. We have plenty of food in the pantry. Like, when you just have, like, one moment of, like, even, yeah, it would suck if you lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. But what's, like, in this country with the support we have from everybody, like, what's, even if we lost, if we lose that hundreds of thousands and it spirals into us going completely bankrupt, like, what's still the worst that can happen? I go get a job and still live in the same house and, like, <laughs> the pantry is still full of food. Like, as soon as I go back to that, I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. Right, mm-hmm. right. Love that. Josh, thank you so much. Before we let you go, uh, if people are interested in learning more about Delta Life Fitness, they want to listen to your radio show, uh, or they just want to get in touch with you, learn more about you, where can they go? The best thing is to uh, probably shoot me an email, josh at deltalifefitness.com. But to find out more about Delta Life, just go to deltalifefitness.com. You can just Google Delta Life Fitness. Texas Franchise Radio, you can find us on Facebook, or you can go to irlonestar.com. We're on there as well. Awesome. Anything before we let you go? Anything no, thank else? you guys so much. This is fun. We're going to have to get back and do it again. Absolutely. I think so. We have, we have a lot more to talk about. <laughs> uh, you are a super fascinating guy. Uh, I don't think I had enough caffeine in me to keep up with your amount of energy. It's incredible. Uh, you're doing amazing things. Keep it up. You are you're very, very inspiring. Um, we love and adore you. So keep up. Keep doing all the great things. Andy, Elizabeth, thank you. You guys too. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Hey, everyone. Before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to check us out every Wednesday for our latest episode. Visit us at eversoncooper.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes or any other podcast player. Thanks for listening.